Welcome to the Real Estate Matters Podcast. I'm Stuart Norton with the Alabama Center for Real Estate at the University of Alabama. And today we have uh, three guests on the show from DNA Companies, Kartik Desai, Evan Watts, and James McCormick. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Thank, thank you. you. Excited to be here. Absolutely. And uh, so, Kartik, uh, as partner and founder uh, of DNA Companies, just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and the company. Okay, cool. So, you know, uh, I grew up in Michigan. I was born in India, grew up in Michigan um, and near Detroit, Motown. So when I was a little kid, I always wanted to design cars. Okay. Thought, so that was kind of my fantasy as a child. Uh, then when I was 12, um, you know, I learned that people design buildings also. They don't <laughs> just exist in nature. And I thought, well, buildings are bigger and cooler and more impressive than cars. So I'll design buildings instead. So I wanted to be an architect and builder since I was 12. Um, and then fast forward, you know, I studied architecture in college, um, started to realize the limitations of being just an architect and started to get more and more interested in the, spent a lot of time. Our background was in uh, architecture and real estate development. And James, you know, was a perfect match when we met him because he was in real estate, like on the business side, but mostly in construction. So we felt like that was a really good uh, triumvirate to build on. And um, I think that was like a fast forward story. If you guys wanted to add more color, uh, go ahead. But, um, you know, so we created DNA developers and architects um, and DNA companies because there are uh, several branches of that, the, you know, the design firm, the, the, the asset management firm, uh, the product management firm and the brokerage entity. So that, that's why we, we call ourselves that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I look forward to hearing more about the, especially the architectural aspect, uh, but also the construction as well. Uh, but it sounds like you kind of have, uh, you know, you have many of the elements of, uh, development, you know, built in right there. Yeah. Kartik, I, I, I was listening to you talk about how you realize the limitations of just being an architect. And it was exactly how I was feeling when I left my old company. I was feeling the limitations of just being a contractor and not being able to sit in the driver's seat as the developer and make the choices about the project, the look of the project, the scope of the project um, that I wanted to be making. And that was exactly why I left my old firm and luckily found you and Evan. And, and I think that's what makes that's what makes us great partners because we all we all see the limitations of doing just the thing that we're very passionate about and then we have to layer on top the art of of development to that to um realize the vision that we want to that we want to deliver indeed yeah uh yeah well thanks for adding that in james uh and then evan uh just as part of the introduction just tell us a little bit about your role with uh dna companies Sure. And, and I think, Stuart, you're going to hear a similar theme from all of us today is that we have our, our, our hands in a lot of different pots, but also we have interest levels and in all types of, you know, the, the process of building and development, inclusive of design and architecture. And so for me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a land of native. Um, I studied architecture at Georgia Tech before going to New York and studying at Columbia and received a very similar background in education that Kartik did. But I've always been very um, passionate about architecture, design, 
building and in particular cities. And that led me to do a lot of studies in Europe, both in Rome and in Paris. And we, we as a team really do love the, the creative energy of the urban environment and the aspect of building in cities and creating just phenomenal spaces. And so hopefully in our discussion today as a team, we will describe to you some of the projects, both in Birmingham and New York, that we've been privileged to be part of and, and really happy and encouraged by a lot of the exciting new uh, growth and energy in the city of Birmingham. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, one thing I uh, find interesting about your company, you know, you have a ra rather large, you know, geographical footprint when it comes to the projects that you guys have worked on. Uh, as you mentioned, New York, but also uh, some projects in the Deep South and in Birmingham. Uh, so tell us uh, a little bit more about um, the Birmingham projects that you have going on at the moment. I can lead into that. So we, we're currently working on a, a redevelopment and repositioning of an older office building in Redmond Park, Highland Park in Birmingham. Uh, we've been working on this project for many years now, it seems. Uh, I think even going as far back as 2018. Uh, that project is uh, really an exciting opportunity for us to be able to work with a building called 2222 Arlington Avenue, work with a building with just phenomenal great old bones, so to speak. Mm -hmm. it's, it was an old office building built in the 70s and 80s over four phases. And so we really were fortunate to be able to come back to this project and, in fact, Need, we needed to reposition our own business plan and pivot to a repositioning of the building itself as an office building. It has some great fundamentals uh, in real estate. It was uh, phenomenally located. It was in between both the city limits of Birmingham and Mountain Brook. It was both kind of on the edge of the revitalizing urban core, but also in more of a neighborhood setting. It both had great access to 280. And it also had great visibility, um, you know, and sight lines of the surrounding neighborhood and city itself. So for us, it posed a great opportunity to come back to the drawing board during COVID. And it gave us time to really look at uh, what is the best use of this building? What, what are the ways that we as a team can bring our skill sets to the table and uh, look at how we can use an, an existing structure, but bring it to the 21st century and, and, and take advantage of just the phenomenal location. And so that's what we put together here in the first project in Birmingham, which is bringing the, this old former glory you know, of a building to you know, the 21st century and modernization. Indeed. Yeah. And I've seen some of the renderings that uh, you guys have put together and looks like, you know, it's definitely brought it, uh, you know, kind of into the modern area, very sleek design there. One of the things I love about the 2222 project is it was a class A building that was purpose built for the Cerrone law firm back in the 70s and 80s by KPS Group, by the very architect that we are working with right now to once again make it a class A, modern class A building for the next round of successful businesses, Birmingham-based businesses. So I, I really love the legacy of this building. I love the story it tells, as well as, you know, it's 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 a great it's a great palette, it's a great canvas to be to be um, renovating. 
Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Uh, and so what attracted you guys uh, to Birmingham? What did, uh, what did you see in the city? Um, and so uh, just tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, should I lead into that? And then yeah. Evan, you can fill in some of the great. details later. Yeah, you know, so Birmingham has been on our radar for 10 years. You know, ten, it was about 2012 or something when Evan turned, you know, we, we share an office and he turned to me and he's like, we should really be looking at Birmingham. And I said, oh, yeah. what, where's that? And then, <laughs> you know, he, he started to tell me more about it. And I was just more and more, it, it became like a fascinating story to me. And so, you know, fast forward to 2018. And since when we started uh, negotiations to purchase the current deals that we just talked about, um, and we came down to Birmingham and that was my first time, you know, Evan is there all the time. His family lives there, but I, I was blown away. I just thought, wow, how did I not know about the city? This is the coolest city, you know, between the fabric of the city and the, 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 the sort of economic base, which is, you know, it's just so interesting to me that the city has these is insulated itself either intentionally or unintentionally um, from the sort of wild market swings in real estate prices and values that have, uh, you know, befallen many of the other cities, including the ones where I live, New York City and right. Atlanta and all the others. And, you know, I think it's just so, I just really like that the economic, the base of the city is built on, you know, all these market sectors like education, law, finance, um, medicine, like, you know, they're all, you know, not cyclical. And so you have this stable city, but then at the same time, it's like culturally fascinating. There's like this amazing food scene, you know, my, some of my favorite, my two, my two favorite restaurants aren't in the, you know, where I live, they're in Birmingham. And oh, what are those, by the way, I'm, all, I'm interested to hear. Well, it, it, it was automatic and, um, and Woodlawn Cycle Cafe, but now that that's the latter has closed, I've now been sold on Helen, which is uh, I've only been a couple times, but um, but so far so good. Um, but that's interesting to hear. Yeah, I've um, yeah, Automatic is it's amazing. We still go to my uh, I have family in Birmingham, um, but interestingly enough, uh, my brother he's a huge fan of Helen. He has a hat, but he gave me a, my wife and I a gift card to Helen for Christmas, and so I'm gonna have to check it out. Interesting, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah but, and, and definitely Automatic's been my favorite since our first visit. So four years in, I'm still a big fan. I make sure to go every trip over there. Um, but anyways, just, there's so many things about the city. I don't know. It's a very broad question, but, um, you know, I, I was just, I love it. <laughs> well, that's, that's great to hear, you know, and you, just building on the points you mentioned, uh, but, you know, for the relatively small, you know, I say small population size, what like, you know, a million, you know, million to 1.1 million in the metro area, not a huge city when it comes to, you know, nationwide, but, you know, huge center for medical research, uh, banking, uh, surprisingly large center for that. Uh, then also uh, law as well, uh, as you mentioned. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's all great to hear. And so, uh, and so how do you, uh, just talking about the approach that uh, DNA companies takes, uh, how is it different than your competitors uh, and specifically in Birmingham? I'd, I'd like to take an opportunity just before we move to that question, Stuart, sure. to embellish on something that Kartik said about 
cycles and real estate cycles. And we were thinking strategically for our company about how to insulate ourselves from some of the big swings that we had experienced through the first decade of, of this century. Um, and we were talking about diversification of product type, diversification of region. And that was around the same time that Evan mentioned Birmingham. And of course, we don't take it lightly just to go into a new territory willy-nilly. Um, that can be very dangerous for a real estate developer to do, especially if you don't understand the nuances of a location, of a culture, of, of what the best uh, use for real estate is. So we really, um, I, I don't know if you call it lucked out, but um, we were extremely fortunate to um, meet Jeffrey Baer and David Silverstein of Five Stone Group and, and Bear Ventures um, and form a development partnership with them, um, which gave us the insights that we needed to have conviction to come to Birmingham and not goof it up. That, uh, yeah, well, that definitely makes sense. That's uh, interesting that you mentioned that. And, uh, and yeah, Bayer has been uh, quite innovative uh, when it comes to some of the products. I mean, this was 20 years ago uh, when I was finishing high school, but uh, when they were building the summit, you know, an outdoor mall, uh, that was kind of, that was very different for the time, but it's obviously, you know, they were well ahead of the curve, uh, especially when you look, you know, with what's going on, you know, with the indoor malls and the contrast there. Yeah. And Evan, since you're the one that, um, you're the Birmingham connection, you're the one that brought us there. Why don't you, why don't you, uh, add a little bit if you, if you don't mind. Well, so I think actually it was our initial discussions years ago with, with Jeffrey and David about talking to, you know, as a team of, you know, of real estate development professionals and, and noticing in the market in Birmingham that there was a real lack of, of for sale housing that um, felt like there was, there was an opportunity for our teams together collectively to build an exciting for sale condominium project. And so Jeffrey came up to New York many years ago and, and toured some of the buildings that we had just completed, one on the High Line in New York City and another in the Upper West Side. And I think he was pleasantly surprised to see a, a team of professionals, both designers and developers, who really put uh, quality and design in the driver's seat of our projects. And so he saw an opportunity to to work with us and to bring us to town. And since we've, we've cultivated a very good relationship and a partnership, as JJ mentioned with the Five Stone Group and at David Silverson's group in you know, putting together uh, our second project, which is called the Tremont. And it's located adjacent to the office project we, we introed with. And, and again, it has all the great fundamentals of location, but it's also just in a phenomenal neighborhood that really uh, presents the opportunity to deliver what we believe are some really exciting and beautifully designed condominium units to take advantage of the location, the views of both the the surrounding Red Mountain, uh, the, the mountains of and topography of Birmingham, but also the city. And I think that it, it, it takes a little bit um, of out-of-the-box think, thinking about what quality and, and what, what kind of project we could you know bring to the city and and deliver but what we have found and what we know is that residents in birmingham 
are very well traveled. They are very well educated and they know what they are, are, are wanting and, and they know what they like. And what I think that they are frustrated or have been frustrated is going to other markets, having to go to Nashville or Atlanta and not have the same quality and experiences in the city. And what we've seen lately, and I think that we've all can grow to appreciate, Birmingham is going through a great moment of revitalization. It has got so much energy. There's the creative food scene. There's some really exciting development projects happening. All of it's happening in Birmingham. And what we are encouraged to see is that how the city rallies behind its own projects. And, and that to us presents just really an excited opportunity to be part of that dialogue and that, and that process of building in the city. Yeah, that's a, you make many great points there. Uh, and especially let's kind of focus on the design element a bit. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I've always been a huge fan of architecture. You know, it's a uh, you know, livable art kind of a uh, you know, way I've kind of described it as a, <laughs> obviously no professional here, but someone who just appreciates the art form. Uh, but can you speak to, uh, you know, just the importance uh, of design when you plan your developments? Yeah, so for, for us, we have, I, I would say there's, three fundamentals in our development projects. It's, it's design, it's constructability, and of course, it's the bottom line. We're a real estate company, and we know that our projects have to be profitable and successful. And we have found that in the past, that the, the profit and the success comes with privileging the first two, design and, and our ability to build, the constructability of the project. So we, we take great care in making sure that we are delivering a all of our different types of projects an office building for to a condominium they are about materiality they are about expression of space and proportion and and i think by by really being honoring and staying truthful to those core concepts we know that design can lead the charge and that when it comes to sourcing an office tenant or or selling high end condominiums buyers and, and tenants gravitate toward wanting to be in a space that clearly has a lot of thoughtfulness uh, attributed to it. And I think that those are some of the, the key fundamentals of, of any of our projects and how we would begin looking at any prospective deal. And I know that JJ and Kartik uh, can offer more um, to, to some of this, but I think that it, at its essence, it's, it's kind of those key concepts. Yeah, uh, Kartik or um, James, did y'all want to add anything there? Sure. Um, you know, the, one of the questions on here is about, you know, Birmingham from a design standpoint. And, you know, I think that ties in nicely to a lot of what Evan said and also just more about, you know, what 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 draws us to Birmingham and the, that connection with the design point. You know, so Birmingham is, in, is full of people who are, you know, have this incredible sophistication and design savvy. And at the same time, it has a legacy of building, you know, beautiful, well-built buildings. In fact, you know, we were impressed to, to find the number of top-notch, not just regional and national, but even international contractors based in Birmingham. So, you know, you take the sophisticated audience, the talent for building, but yet there hasn't been a huge amount of investment in top and high design 
high quality, not, I mean, there's always high quality, but you know what I mean? Like the, the high design, the stuff that we do, there hasn't been a huge amount of investment in that. So to us, that's an opportunity to give the people what they want, because there's an appetite for beautiful, you know, sexy buildings. And that's what we want to deliver. And so I think that's, that's kind of like my angle on that. Um, JJ has some other very um, interesting points to make too, I think, but. Well, maybe I'll, <clears throat> I'll illustrate the point by telling a story. And the point I want to illustrate is what Evan said about allowing design and constructability to be in the driver's seat and allow that to then um, impact your bottom line. Actually, this story that I'm about to tell comes from before I even met Evan and Kartik, but it speaks to how all of us would approach this a particular design and budget problem. <clears throat> I was working on a, on a very tall condominium project in New York at the time called 50 West. And there was a, um, a budget issue with the crown of the building. The crown of the building being what uh, shrouds mechanical equipment from view. And it was very important to, to deliver a, a nice looking crown in this building because it could be seen on the skyline. Right. You didn't want a big cooling tower just sticking out like a sore thumb. And the, the architect who was Helmut Jan out of Chicago designed it out of steel. And um, the curtain wall was to carry up the steel structure um, all, all the way. So it was a continuous um, sort of cylinder of glass all the way to the sky. And that element came in $4 million over budget. Okay. And, yeah. you know, that's meaningful. And the developer said, uh, I guess we're just going to have a cooling tower sticking out like a sore <laughs> thumb in the skyline. And everybody sort of just rolled over and said, okay, because the developer had settled for that. But it, 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 it made me very uneasy. In fact, it, it gave me like, it made me sick to my stomach. And I, decided to work on this problem in the background for maybe a month or two. And I rallied the concrete contractor who was going to be building the superstructure of the entire rest of the building. And I said, you know, what would it cost you to just extend the superstructure up another three floors um, and create the crown out of architectural concrete, which you would typically never do. That would typically not be the right solution to the problem. Um, but because they were building the rest of the building and I was coming at it from an engineering and constructability approach, it was the right solution. And the architect hadn't thought about it. Interesting. And um, when I approached the concrete contractor, he gave me a budget that happened to be about a million dollars over budget, not four. So it was still more expensive but it was workable and it got the crown back onto the drawing board. And we eventually did it out of architectural concrete and it's magnificent. And I love concrete. I love that material. And I'm so proud that that building was completed as intended. Uh, and it just took that, um, that uh, intuition and, and that um, motivation to save a critical design element. And that, you know, when I first met Evan and Kartik, I told that story and others like it. And they were like, oh my God, like we need, this is what we do. 
this is we we do not hack limbs off of our job off of our projects to um, protect the bottom line. We protect the bottom line by making sure those special elements stay in our projects. Absolutely, yeah, that makes great sense. And uh, and yeah, and imagine how the sales or leasing in the building would have been entirely different if it had that unfinished look. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good lead into the, do you mind, you guys mind if I tell the 456 story or an abbreviated version? Sure. You know, you mentioned, Stuart, the, um, you know, the, the, the leasing and sales and the effect of the design on leasing and sales. So the, one of my formative experiences was the first uh, project that I worked on in a uh, design and development capacity was uh, started in like 2006, seven, I was hired. And it was a project in Chelsea near the High Line. And we, you know, we went all out on the design because, you know, we, we wanted, we have all, all these units, which, you know, people at the time, the brokers and everyone were like, that's crazy, you know? So it, we've always had the habit of investing in design and construction judiciously, as, as JJ said, but doing so nevertheless, sometimes in ways that might raise eyebrows or, you know, the conventional wisdom might think we're crazy. So we, we designed this building, it opens the sales office opens a week before Lehman Brothers collapses. And mind you, we're in New York City. So wow. yeah. <laughs> the sales office opened. The only ones at the opening party were us. And then it was crickets. Um, and, you know, it's a million dollar sales office. So it was an interesting experience because I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to lose my job. You know, I'm going to, you know, the bank's going to bail on us. Our investors are going to bail on us. But none of those things happened for us. You know, we, we plowed ahead. The lender was faithful. The investors were confident in our vision. Our, you know, the principal of our firm was, um, you know, very comfortable with what we were doing. And it was a really good education for me because, you know, what happened is some of the other buildings in the neighborhood were foreclosed on. Lenders took them back from the developers, these failed projects. Ours, on the other hand, Eventually, we finished construction, and suddenly the units start selling like hotcakes after, you know, it was about 2010, and it sold out quicker. I mean, we had a faster absorption than any other project in the neighborhood, and, you know, aside from a Starkitect design building by Jean Nouvel, we also had the highest sale prices per square foot. And, you know, and again, as other projects were being foreclosed on, our investors still got, you know, a 12% IRR, which, you know, is meager as the target goes, but that is fantastic in the middle of the great, you know, recession. So I think that that as an experience just really ingrained in me and by extension, the team that there's economic value in good design, quality construction, and you know, creative, just a unique creative vision and making a product that is, stands out from the crowd. Yeah, it not only has upside value in a good market, but it has downside protection in a bad market. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, uh, and I've just spoken with uh, other uh, builders and developers who take a similar approach and 
uh, one thing I've kind of heard is, you know, the, the last thing you want to skimp on is architecture and design, you know, because it's going to, it'll definitely, you know, it, it's very important, especially uh, to your, you know, specific type of buyer. That's right. And, and because we're the, we're both the architect and the owner, we can make these qualified decisions at every step of the way through the design process. And we, we're constantly checking ourselves at every phase. Are we in budget? Are we staying core to the, the principles of the project? Have we eroded any of the, of the, you know, the core concepts that we want to, uh, to, you know, to really highlight and emphasize? And so by doing that, we, we stay on track. And we're, we're making sure that we can build it and we can afford it and that it's still going to maintain its profitability, but also its beauty. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, absolutely. Great point. Um, and so uh, and so kind of pivoting to some of the. Uh, let's see, the concepts that you work with that you like to prioritize as a company, uh, sustainability and passive design. Uh, what. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about passive design. That's something that, uh, you know, I've just, I found that to be a very interesting term. Tell, uh, can you, somebody expand on that one, please? Sure. Passive design does not mean um, it, it, passive versus active. Well, it kind of does, as a matter of fact. Passive de- the, the, <laughs> the, the goal of passive design is to make your building require as little energy input as possible in order to maintain its interior comfort level from a thermal perspective, from a humidity perspective. Uh, so those things rely, uh, those things are air quality, but there's also light quality, sound quality, etc. cetera. Um, most passive design starts with extreme care and tightness of the exterior envelope, almost as if you were building like a Yeti thermos, but in building form. And you also have to appreciate um, sighting and how you can use the sun to naturally heat or cool, um, depending on how you expose the building to the sun. And this is, this is without solar panels, right? This is just allowing yes. the sun mm-hmm. to do what it does and heat surfaces. Um, so the goal really is to have as little energy input as possible. And if you achieve that, then some magical things start to happen because you can, you know, you can heat and cool your house with something the size of a hair blower, a hair dryer. So, and just imagine that if, if you're heating and cooling your house with, with a hair dryer, you could do that. You could power that with, a single solar panel on your roof, as opposed to having, you know, your entire roof and your garage and half your lawn covered in solar panel arrays. So all of a sudden, um, a lot of these sustainable goals are well within reach, whereas prior to focusing on passive, they may have been um, either too expensive or too uh, deleterious to the design or what have you. Um, so that's, that's what passive has the potential to do. Um, it has the potential to allow design to get back in the driver's seat. Um, it it has the potential to obviously be way more energy conscious, which, um, is, is an overarching macro level goal, um, of, of, of ours as well. Yeah. And just, it makes me think of like, you know, it's a, it's an innovative concept, but also at the same time building upon a lot of like the 
you know, ancient methods of architecture, it kind of makes me think of, you know, like the, the thick Adobe walls, you know, they would use in the Southwest. Like thermal mask and, and other passive design features that really take advantage of your environment, your local environment. And so that's the Adobe Adobe wall is a great example. Okay. Yeah. Well, really, uh, well, that's, uh, that's great to hear. And also just, uh, you know, when it, you know, maintenance issues it just seems to you know it has a trickle down effect as well you know it's uh the heat well, you know, also, yeah go ahead and also 40 percent of global emissions right now are, are are caused from from buildings and from and by just treating the envelope as jj has talked about and sealing the the buildings that we're, we're building or that we can build a society we, we we take advantage of a very easy move to change our future and, and it's a lot less costly than having to even switch, you know, uh, our, our energy sources. It's just let's treat our buildings and, and let's take care of what we're building and make sure that has enduring quality. And that's part of the sustainability cycle. Indeed. Uh, yeah, that's all. That's incredibly interesting there. Uh, also, if we just kind of move on to uh, to the impact of your product, uh, of your projects, uh, what's your what are your goals or your visions when it comes to the impact that you want your projects to have? I think that, you know, to start with, our goal is always to make places where people want to be, where they want to spend their time working or hanging out or living. And so we just, you know, we want to build the build the places and the buildings where it forms the background, which is a happy, healthy background where people can live their lives. Um, that's kind of like our overarching approach. Um, you know, maybe the guys can talk a little bit about specifically what, how each project might have an impact. Well, I also think that we we're excited again about the ability to, to contribute good architecture into our built environment. And, you know, in the case again of uh, 2222 and the Tremont, both on Arlington Avenue, we're encouraged to to make this, to build this great project, but also the impact on the surrounding right-of-ways and improving some of the adjacent properties. And, and as you know, it's adjacent to the, the Red Mountain Expressway over ramp and there, there's some kind of blighted area below. And so what we're proposing is a, a broader, you know, uh, development and we're calling it kind of the gateway project for you know using this threshold into the city and into Redmond depending on which side of the bridge you're on to to be something that's currently take it from an eyesore today into a, a beautiful passageway for the future and and so it involves enhancing the pedestrian ac- access and activity lighting landscaping just curb appeal and and also improving uh, you know, some of the, the more deferred maintenance aspects of the sidewalks and the, the manhole covers. And I think it takes projects like these to be a catalyst for sometimes for a neighborhood to, to begin to be revitalized. And there's so much energy already in and around Five Points South that it, I think that there is a lot of great new projects in store to transform that one particular neighborhood, for instance into the future. Okay. Uh, and 
Uh, so is uh, is the Tremont, is that a revitalization project or is that a ground up new construction? That's ground up new construction. Um, okay. And it's a seven story uh, condominium building built above two levels of, uh, you know, subterranean parking. And that's that fronts 22nd Street uh, adjacent or across the street, rather, from the current Crescent office building, just as a way of locating it. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like halfway up Red Mountain, so to speak, you know, and you mentioned the views offered earlier. That's correct. Okay. Uh, Interesting. Um, And so just kind of speaking to the cycles that were mentioned earlier. uh, So what's I'm just kind of interested to know, like, what's uh, how are things going in New York? You know, I mean, it's uh, does anybody want to speak to that? Just, you know, just the the city itself. what it's been like there for the last couple of years. Um, well, I live in Manhattan and Evan lives in Brooklyn and JJ lives upstate. So we all have a different perspective on it. Um, you know, where I live, it, it's fascinating because it was very quiet um, for the first few months. You know, I was guilty like a lot of people and I, skipped town and and went out to the country for a few months just to to lay low. But, you know, we came back that summer, 2020, and the city, it started to wake up. I mean, what's what you have to, I guess what's of note is that culturally and socially, the city has woken up much faster than it has in terms of um, business, because of the work from home trend is so strong here. Right. So, you know, if you go to the places where it's mostly offices, you know, it's, it's very quiet. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 it's perking up. It's more busy now. You know, there are, there are lines again at the lunch spots and everything, but it took a, it's, it's much more of a slow wake up. Whereas if you're in neighborhoods, with lots of restaurants and bars and where lots of people live, like the Lower East Side or Chelsea, where I live, like, you know, it's very busy. The, the gym was packed this morning. The, you know, you go to like a fun restaurant or bar and it's crowded. It's, it's normal in a lot of ways. But then in some ways, in terms of, you know, commuting into the city for work and whatnot, that has not normalized and there may be a new normal. But again, socially and culturally, normalcy has returned. Well, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, I was just interested. I just, my, you know, my gut instinct there was that it's probably not as bad as people say it is. Um, that's right. New York, you know, and it's New York. I mean, come on, you know, New York will, uh, New York will always be, uh, you know, significant when, you know, it's, it, it is what it is, you know, it's, uh, might take a little while, but it's, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. One anecdote that people, as many people might've left that created an opportunity. I mean, so many friends of mine who, you know, previously lived, you know, up, you know, a little bit further out, they took the opportunity to move into, into downtown because suddenly there were deals to be had last year. Sure. Was, so. Yeah, that's a good point. And cities have cycles and, and we're certainly seeing that in New York. You also know that it's back, so to speak, when every corner you turn, there's a, a, a foreign tourist again. So you know that there's still this enduring quality in the allure of the city. And so I think that long term, it's going to be fine. And, and again, like from my perspective in the neighbor, in Brooklyn, where I live, it's 
it's never really gotten uh, depopulated during the the pandemic. It's been, you know, it's a residential area. So I think that it will come back and it will come back roaring. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, I agree entirely. It's just, uh, I've only been, uh, just me personally, I've been there uh, only two times. Uh, once for a wedding, you know, rooftop and uh, I think it was in Chelsea area, maybe, you know, it's just amazing. Uh, but just, and then another time for a concert at uh, Madison Square Garden for a couple of nights. But it's just, you know, it's just, it's just very eye-opening as a, you know, it's just an institution, uh, you know, the heart of America in a lot of ways. Um, and so, uh, so we're getting kind of toward the end here. Are there any other, uh, a few topics that y'all want to address uh, as we kind of wrap it up here? Well, one of your questions uh, <clears throat> compares and contrasts building in New York versus Birmingham. Yes. And one of the things that I've noticed is the professionals involved in the job in Birmingham, the architects, the engineers, the contractors, they really do dig in and invest themselves as partners in the success of the job. And it's a feeling and it's a camaraderie that is different than um, building a job with a New York City-based team. And I've been so impressed uh, with everybody that we've worked with on 2222 and Tremont and others in their, um, their dedication to delivering a great project. Uh, there's no, there's very little passing of the buck. There's very little trying to shed risk to other people. Um, and it's, it's just very refreshing to, um, to do business with, um, with people like that. So I've, I, uh, very happy with that. That's great to hear. And also just like the permitting process, you know, I'm sure that, I mean, is it, how difficult is it to get a permit, uh, in New York, especially maybe in you know Manhattan or Brooklyn, there there's there's more. Um, it, it's a bigger ball of yarn, sure, because there's a lot more agencies that uh, tend to want to get involved and also tend to um, not want to get involved until another agency has given their approval. So there, there's there's a lot of like chicken and egg in New York that you have to navigate, and right. and that can be very challenging and, and a very lengthy process. Um, in Birmingham, it, it does seem a bit more straightforward, although not also not easy. Um, it's different. Um, but I can speak more from a, from a department of buildings or buildings department perspective. Uh, it, 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 it's a lot smoother, um, in Birmingham for us so far. Oh, absolutely. It, it's a lot smoother. And just to kind of touch again on what JJ was making, you know, there, we just are so fortunate to have great partners on the ground in Birmingham. We have, you know, our business partners, but also, you know, we have a phenomenal builder in Whore Construction and all our professionals on the team are very collaborative. And that partnership is so uh, enduring and, and required for complicated projects and, and exciting projects. And so I think that it, it, it truly is a collaborative effort. Yeah, including our lender, you know, our lender has been very supportive as well. Service first, they're also local, as you know. Um, 
you know, I, I think just to recap, one one point that Evan and JJ and I were discussing yesterday is the importance of those local team, you know, local partners, local team, because, you know, we don't, we're not interested in being those jerks that blow into town and kind of act like they own the place, you know, because while we feel very comfortable and we know that we can handle incredibly complex real estate development projects, only half of the, half of the complexity half of the challenge of a project is that internal complexity. The other half is the external complexity of the local community, the politics, the culture, all the, you know, understanding all the different players and agencies and, and all that network of relationships that is incredibly local because, you know, as they say, real estate is very local. So, you know, as, as James had said earlier, we don't take it lightly. And so we've been, you know, investing our time and energy in Birmingham for years now and, and, and cultivating that network and those relationships and value those relationships incredibly. Well, wonderful. That's, uh, that's great to hear. And, uh, and so I think a good place to, to wrap it up is uh, just trends when it comes to, you know, architectural trends. Uh, what are we seeing now and what do y'all, you know, what's the next trend in architecture? I think that we're seeing masonry come back and play a, a larger role in a lot of, uh, you know, the facade structures, uh, facade materials. Um, Birmingham is a town of masonry and brick and, and limestone and, and, and uh, iron ore. So I think that for us, we're excited to be building a, a new, um, a new building that really gets to honor that, that legacy. And the, there's certainly a lot of new changes in workplace design as well, which is, you know, we're fortunate because it happens that the bones of 2222 were well suited to that. But, you know, a lot of people now, when they look at office, they're not as interested in being in a high rise and sharing an elevator with, you know, 20 strangers. They're, they're more interested in having access to the outside, having um, features that allow collaboration and connection within the team and, um, you know, some, some amount of privacy as well. So it's, uh, there's a lot of changes happening in workplace design as well. Yeah. It's, and it's really been nice to accommodate those changes, uh, at our project at 2222. We have two tenants in the building right now, both of whom have really stressed those collaborative um, and really fun spaces that they've integrated into their office designs. And you can tell there's a big effort being made to make people want to get back into the office and, and once they're there, really enjoy being with the, the rest of the people in the office and not disappear into a cubicle or into, you know, they, 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 they're big kitchens, gathering spaces, recreation rooms. These are part of the elements that are being asked for. And it's really fun um, to, to be able to accommodate those and put those into 2222. Yeah, that's a good point you make about, uh, you know, communal areas. And, you know, that's just in some of the projects I've seen, you know, a lot of them have been adaptive reuse uh, in the Birmingham area or in the downtown area, but just, you know, getting away from that isolated traditional office into something that, you know, promotes a little bit more collaboration 
uh, it's great to see that. Uh, and I know that that's very much appreciated. Uh, and, you know, by the people that work there and also in demand when it comes, that, that's what, you know, people are looking for uh, these days. Especially as you turn back to the workplace. And, right. and I think that we'll see those trends reoccur and reemerge in New York City when it does begin to open back up and in the office space, the office world. For sure. Uh, well, guys, uh, well, I just want to thank you all uh, for jo uh, for joining the podcast today. This has uh, been a great episode. Any final thoughts uh, y'all want to share just as we wrap it up here? No, appreciate the time. We, we really enjoyed it and um, looking forward to doing it again sometime. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one. I'll give you one fun soundbite going back to your sustainability question. We focus okay. on passive. Yeah. But another keystone of our sustainability plan as DNA companies is adaptive reuse. And the reason that fits so well in sustainability is if you bother to measure the impact that sourcing and culling materials, raw materials out of the ground, be it, be it, you know, lime that's activated into concrete or be it iron ore that becomes steel members or you know silicon that becomes glass if you measure the impact that all that processing and transportation from one corner of the earth to the other has it's very meaningful we calculated that because we reused just the steel and concrete that was already um, there for 2222 we deferred the same amount of carbon from going into the atmosphere as two and a half years of operating that building. Wow. And so, yeah, so I, I think, I think a, 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 a strategy that um, developers should have architects, just people, you know, you think about reusing and recycling common items, handheld items, um, a bottle of water can be reused a dozen times. It's so can a building. Um, and, and that has sometimes the most impact um, to defer the energy used to create something brand new. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And also just, um, you know, kind of hearkening back to the prior use. That's, uh, that's something that I just, just personally, it's just really cool to see, you know, when, it, you know, whether it's an old industrial building to office space, or, you know, just anything. It just, you know, pays homage to the prior use, but also why not use what's already there, you know, and kind of bring it up, you know, to modern standards. Uh, well, this is a wonderful episode, uh, guys. Thanks again. Uh, and I appreciate y'all joining us today. Our pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and um, see you at Automatic sometime. Yeah, hope so. Excellent. Thank <laughs> you so much. It was fun. the Real Estate Matters podcast produced by the Alabama Center for Real Estate. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Podbean, or just ask Alexa to play the Real Estate Matters podcast.